thank everyone for being here and those who are listening in via FM 106.3 and also those who may be uh, watching the live stream from home. We thank you for your interest in spiritual things and in joining uh, in this Bible study. Uh, let's begin with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you uh, for this quiet hour of the evening. We privileged to gather with the saints to worship you and to study from our Bibles. Please help us to have open and receptive hearts that as we study we may accept the truths that are taught and have a sincere and earnest desire to apply those things in our lives each and every day that we may be more useful and more profitable servants to you as, as the days go by. Please look down upon us in tender mercy. Forgive us, we pray, of any sin that we've committed anything that would stand between us and you. Pray for clean and pure hearts. We'd grow closer to you day by day and be more like you as time goes by. We're mindful of those of our number who are sick and unable to be with us. Please bless them with good health once again. We're mindful of those who have recently mourning the passing of loved ones. Pray that you would continue to be with them to bless and to comfort each one. Pray, Father, now that you would be with us uh, throughout this service and this Bible study tonight. Help us to apply the things that we learn. Be with us throughout life that we may be a good example before others wherever we go. And pray, Father, that when our time upon this earth is ended, that we may have that home with you in heaven with all the redeemed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Book of Ezra. We're in uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 tonight. But before we pick up there, I, I overlooked something last week that I really meant to talk about. So let's just do that very briefly. You remember that as well as... Uh, uh, Cyrus allowing the Jews to return and to rebuild the temple... But he also allowed those, uh, the remnant as they returned to, to return the, the items that had been taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar back in 586 B.C. All the, the uh, utensils and bowls and uh, cups and things that the priest would use as, in their performance of their duties in the temple. And these were all uh, gold items. And if you read passages such as 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 19, there David, talking with Solomon, described them as holy vessels. These items from the temple were holy, David said. In 1 Kings 8 and verse 4, they're described as holy utensils. So the point is that these items from the temple are considered to be holy because God said they were holy, of course, you know something that's holy. What that means is it's, it's set apart. These utensils, these vessels, were to be used by the priests in and around the temple in the performance of their God-given duties in the temple. And so you didn't take those items and take them out of the temple and just use them for uh, common, everyday functions. You wouldn't take it and go and drink your orange juice for breakfast or something like that. These were holy. They were set apart for this specific use and this only. 
And of course, we all remember in Daniel chapter 5 when Belshazzar used some of those holy vessels to drink wine out of when he was having a drunken party. And of course, that was when he saw the handwriting on the wall and he lost his life that very night. So the point is, holy is to be used in service to God and in reverence to Him and not in other ways. So, so what does that mean for, for you and me? Uh, first of all, let me say that uh, because the Israelites had, as we see there in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, one of the reasons they had gone into Babylonian captivity, and I've got it highlighted, is because they made no distinction between the holy and the profane or the holy things and what is common. And they didn't treat God as holy. So what does that mean to us? Well, that's a, a big subject, and David or Leland could probably preach a whole series on that. But let's just look at just one verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There the inspired writer. He's writing to the church at Corinth, of course. says, Do you not know that you, you are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. So the point is that we as Christians are the holy temple of God. And we're not to profane that holy temple. Or to say it another way, then we're not to assemble with the saints on Sunday and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then maybe on Monday do things that we shouldn't be doing. If you're going to work then you do the job that you're paid to do. You don't goof off while the boss is not watching. And you don't use a questionable language or tell off-color jokes and things like that. You're a Christian. You're a temple of God seven days a week. And we're to be holy and set apart for God's service seven days a week. Let's... uh, quickly recap where we came to from in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You remember the Lord stirred up Cyrus because we're going to see God's hand in this all the way from beginning to the end. And uh, Ezra emphasized the building of the temple. And of course that represented God's very presence with them. And of course that would include them keeping all of the law. But it started here with worth building the house of God. And so in quoting from Cyrus, he mentions there first that the Lord had stirred up his spirit and appointed me, he said, to build a house in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. Priests and Levites rose and, and even everyone whose spirit of God is stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord. In fact, the house of the Lord is mentioned in each of the first five verses of Ezra chapter 1. So you see what's on Ezra's mind. Purpose of this return is to build the house of the Lord and get back to the Lord like we should have been to begin with. Ezra chapter 1 verse 11 and chapter 2 verse 2 were introduced to a man named uh, Sheshbazar or Sheshbazar who we said is likely the same as, as Zerubbabel. Sheshbazar is probably the Chaldean name and Zerubbabel being the Jewish name for the same man. And of course we saw how that he was directly descended from Abraham through David and that through Zerubbabel 
uh, the Messiah would come to this earth. We saw that just, just under 50,000 Jews returned from Babylonian captivity at, at this time back to Judah. Ezra chapter 3, verse 2, then they begin to offer sacrifices. Actually, verse 3 tells us that they were terrified of the people of the land. And so they began to offer sacrifices, and it stressed over and over and over again, as written in the law of Moses. This time they wanted to get it right. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, we see that it was in the second year of uh, Darius, and they began to uh, rebuild the temple. They laid the foundations of the temple there in about 535, 534 B.C. And as a result of that, in the last couple of verses there, there was, there was great rejoicing. So we've got a really good start. They have returned, and they're offering sacrifices according to the law. And they've laid the foundation of the temple, so they're on their way to getting things back the way that it should be. So let's look at Ezra chapter 4. Read a few verses there, beginning with uh, verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's household and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. We have been sacrificing to him since the days of Hazarhaden, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's household of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building the house to our God, but we ourselves will, build, will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Jude and frightened them from building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they've uh, begun building the temple, they've laid the foundation. But their enemies, it said in verse 1, uh, sought to discourage them. I think Zerubbabel probably saw through what they really intended. If they had let them come build with them, they would have frustrated everything they tried to do. And so he didn't allow that. But they continued to discourage them, verse 4, and frighten them and keep them from continually uh, to build the temple. So the question came to my mind then, you know, why are these people enemies of the Jews? What, what caused all of this animosity anyway? Uh, oh, there's, our, there's our timeline. I just got an error there showing that we'll be studying tonight from, from uh, about 534 B.C. to 516. It'll be about the time frame for uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 cover. But if you remember <clears throat> back in 722 B.C., which is approaching 200 years before the events in Ezra chapter 4, that uh, the world power at that time was the Assyrians, and they had defeated Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and taken them off into captivity. And then over time, other nations that they conquered, they took those people and moved them into the area around where Samaria had been. And apparently for some time the, the land there had been pretty much uninhabited and wild beasts began to multiply. And so when these uh, Gentiles were moved into that area, some of them were killed by lions and things like that. And so they asked the king to send a priest to teach them how to fear the Lord. 
of, and they considered God just to be a, a God of that specific area. And so they did that. But look down in verse 29. This is 2 Kings 17, verses 24 through 41. But if you look at verse 29, it says, But every nation still made gods of their own and put them in the houses of high places with the people of Samaria, which the people of Samaria had made every nation in their own cities in which they lived. And so even though a priest had come and taught them how to worship God, they still had their own idols and their own gods, and they worshiped all of these. And, of course, this happened over, as we said, a period of nearly nearly 200 years here. And so... Um, what happened then when the when Israel was exiled, they never got every single person out of the land. We saw the same thing happen in 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. They left a few of the very poorest people. So over the years, the Jews intermarried with these other people, and so then there came a race that came to be known as Samaritans. And so they were part Jewish and part Gentile. And of course, the law, as we'll see later in Ezra, was that the Jews weren't to mix with Gentiles and intermarry and, and do that kind of thing. And so Jews really looked down on Gentiles in general and the Samaritans specifically, and apparently the feeling was, was pretty mutual. They just didn't like each other. Remember also, in, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 through 20, this was a roughly a hundred years before the events in Ezra chapter 4. And remember good King Josiah and all of his reforms. He just kind of went on a rampage and destroyed all of the idols that previous kings had built and even put in the temple of God. But not only did he uh, destroy the idols in Judah, but he went up into the land of, of what had been Israel, the northern ten tribes as well. And I won't read all of this for sake of time, but he went up to Bethel, and that's where one of the golden calves was set up, as you remember. And uh, he, he broke down the idols, that he uh, demolished its stones, ground them into dust, and, and burned the Asherah, the carved images there. And he took bones from the graves and burned them on the altar to defile it according to the word of God. And look at verse 19. Josiah also removed all the houses, the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord, and did to them just as he had done at Bethel. So he tore those down, ground them up into powder as well, and burned bones on the altars. And all the priests of the high places which were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So... He did away with these altars, and not only that, he slew the priests that had been uh, used in, in, in offering sacrifices in these high places. So you can just imagine, probably a lot of the people of that land, the Samaritans, didn't appreciate a lot of that very much, even though he actually was doing them a favor if, if they would uh, forsake their idols and worship the true God. But you can just imagine that they probably didn't... Uh, didn't appreciate all that very much. And so when they heard that these Jews were returning, probably weren't very happy. And so they frustrated the work of the Jews just as much as they, as much as they possibly could. This chapter 4 is uh, a bit unique. There are two thoughts about 
what this chapter actually covers. The first one would say the entire chapter is in chronological order. And the second would say that there's a parenthetical statement that leaps into the future. So if you get down, excuse me, to verse 6, it says, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Those that say this is a, a continuous chronological order would say that Ahasuerus there would be Cambyses. Here, here is a listing of the kings of Persia here. And you see it was Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, reigned after him. And then a man named, what's that, Bardia, after him. And it was only seven months that he reigned. But they would say this, this Ahasuerus was just a title and really, this was Cambyses that he's talking about. And then in verse 7, it talks about in the days of Artaxerxes, and another letter was written. And they say this Artaxerxes is that fellow that reigned right after uh, Cambyses. So they say it's those two kings in the uh, Persian Empire is who he's referring to when he says Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. Uh, it, it is interesting, though, that if that be true, uh, that would be the only place in history that this uh, Cambyses was referred to as a hazard. This would be the, the only place that that ever happens. But that doesn't mean it wasn't him. It still could be, could have been, that could be the truth. But the, the other uh, thought about this is beginning with verse 6 through verse 23 is a long parenthetical statement. And that Ezra the writer is impressing on our minds the uh, opposition and the, and the uh, discouragement that the Jews faced over a long period of time. And they would say this Ahasuerus of verse 6 is, is Xerxes. If that be true, then the things he's going to say about it would be about 50 years or more in the future. Verse 7, the Artaxerxes there is the Artaxerxes you see uh, here in the, in the list of uh, the kings that followed Xerxes. And if that be true, if it was him, then that would be 70 or more years in the future. We'll uh, go through this letter they're about to write here in just a moment, and we'll see some things that will kind of give you some clues, and you can make up your own mind uh, which way it really is and which kings these really were. But in the end, uh, the point to be made is the same. doesn't matter which one, which one it was. So if you get down to verse 9, it says, Then when Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, we'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes, the officials, the secretaries, and the men of Herak and the Babylonians and the men of Susa, and that is the Elamites and the rest of the nations with great honorable, uh, and he's talking about here, this was uh, Esser Hayden, which you'll read about in 2 Kings chapter 19 that was a uh, Assyrian king, deported and settled in the city of Samaria, all these people uh, in the region beyond the river. So frequently it's talked about this area, the, the region beyond the river. From the viewpoint of Persia, that would be west of the Euphrates River, and that would include Judah, and I guess it would be... Uh, Syria and what we see of is Lebanon and, and those countries today in that area. 
And so they wrote, wrote this letter to uh, Artaxerxes. And in this letter, what, he, what they're trying to do is persuade Artaxerxes to not let them continue this, this building. I'm sorry, they wrote it to Darius. Getting my kings mixed up here. Getting ahead of myself. So they wrote it to Darius, and they said, Let it be known that we have gone to the province of Judah. I'm, I'm in chapter 5. <laughs> I'll get back here in a minute. They'd write it to Artaxerxes beyond the river, and they said that they are rebuilding this rebellious and evil city and in the furnishing the walls and repairing the foundations. And so what they're accusing the Jews of doing here is not building the temple, but rebuilding the walls of the city. And we see the walls mentioned in verse 12, again in verse 13, again in verse 16, and verse 21, talking about this, this city. And so that's one thing that kind of makes me believe that the, the latter interpretation is, is more accurate, that this is a parenthetical statement looking into the future when they actually were in the days of Nehemiah, actually, when they were rebuilding the walls. So they said to King Artaxerxes then that this is a rebellious and evil city. And so they encouraged him, you just look in the records and you'll see that that, that is the case. And so they said, you know, if, if uh, you let them rebuild this city, then it's going to be to your detriment. You won't get taxes and things from them like that. So you need to put a stop to this. So he checked the records and he made a search there in verse 19. He says, a, a, a decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and has been discovered that this city has risen up against the kings in, in past days that rebellion and revolt have been uh, perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. Of course, you you remember he's talking about in the days of uh, David and Solomon and uh, Hezekiah and Josiah. So they had conquered the regions around about, and actually other countries were paying tribute to them in those days. Of course, uh, King Darius now wants that to be the other way around. He wants to be the one that received the, the taxes and the tribute. And so there were, there were some truth, though, to what these uh, men said in the letter that uh, they had been rebellious. You remember in the days of uh, Jehoiachin, and you see that there in, in 2 Kings 24, and verse 1, that uh, Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And again, Second Chronicles 36 and verse 13, Zedekiah did the same thing. He served uh, Nebuchadnezzar for a few years, and then he rebelled. And so there was some truth in what was being written here to the king. And so the result of that then, in uh, verse 21, then, so King Darius says, So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of neglecting it. Verse 22, verse 23 says, Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before uh, Rehum and Shemshiah, the scribe and their colleagues, that they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. 
So again, I believe that was later on uh, in the reign of Artaxerxes, and that's, he stopped them rebuilding the walls of the city. So if we read then this chapter without the parenthetical statement, we'll get through verse 5 and we'll skip all the way to verse 24. Actually, verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then you skip right down to verse 24. And then the work of the house of God of Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, it's 535, 534 B.C. They laid the foundation. They were working. And then uh, the people of the area wrote these letters to discourage them. And the king wrote back. And, well, they discouraged these people and they stopped. Okay? They were working. And the people discouraged them in every way they could. And so they stopped building. And this verse 24 tells us that they stopped until the second year of the king of Darius, king of Persia, which was about 520 B.C. So we're talking about 14, 15 years here after their good beginning that they were discouraged and they just, they just quit. They, they gave up. And so discouragement. Uh, I think... That is the primary objective of Ezra in writing chapter 4. He's the one who's just to see that this discouragement went on as, as long as the Jews were there when they were building the temple and later uh, building the city itself. Then there were always discouragements to overcome. And so as, as we read about these things, then we need to realize as Christians we're, we're going to face same kind of things, right? Second uh, Timothy three and verse twelve that all who would live godly will suffer persecution. Skipping some of my, there it is. All who suffer persecution. Uh, Peter talked about that. Well, you know, First and Second Peter both talk of quite a little bit about uh, Christians and enduring. Uh, persecutions and and getting through that uh, and so it, it's it's easy to say you know as Christians we need to persevere we've, we've heard a lot about perseverance in the last few lessons and we need to lot let these discouragements uh, overcome us I heard a, a a story some years ago that said uh, Man heard that the devil was going to retire from business, and since he was retiring, he would no longer have use for the tools of his trade, things like hatred and malice, envy, jealousy, those kinds of things. And so he decided to have a sale and turn a little profit and sell the tools of his trade. And so he set up a yard sale and advertised, and the day of the sale, he had everything laid out on tables and priced and marked for sale. And the people gathered around and looked to see what he had to sell because they were really curious about it. And they noticed that way off to one side there was a table with one little tool on it. It was worn and shiny from a great deal of use. But they didn't know what it was. And it was priced much higher than anything else. And so finally somebody asked the devil, just, you know, what is this tool and why is it so expensive? 
He said, oh, that is discouragement. And the reason it's priced higher than anything else is because I can use that and it'll work when nothing else will. He said, I can, I can even use that on the most faithful of Christians. And it works most of the time. And he said, and the reason it works so well is because there are very few that realize that it belongs to me. You think about it. Discouragement is a tool of the devil. And so how do, how do we overcome those kind of things? It's easy to say just you need to persevere. But how do you, how do, you do that? Well, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, the Holy Spirit is. And he tells them some things that, uh, that we can do to uh, overcome discouragement. If you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, let's remember, remember what is in Hebrews chapter 11. There's all of those uh, examples of faith. You know, it was Abel. Noah, Abraham, Moses, all of those. And they all endured some, some really difficult and trying times, but they came through it with their faith even stronger. And so following that chapter, in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance of sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And what I want to emphasize there, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So when we're encountering uh, difficulties and I guess we're going through a time this COVID-19 thing is, can be a bit discouraging. We can't associate with our Christian uh, brethren like we would like to. We're not able to worship exactly like we would like to be able to do it. So that, that's kind of a discouraging thing. But when we look at all of these examples that the Bible provides for us and see all that those people endured, we see this and say, you know, this is really not that bad. If this is the worst thing that we ever have to encounter and ever have to endure and the worst discouragement that we ever face, we're in really good shape. And so what we need to do is not focus on what's discouraging and focus on self and what we don't like, but keep our eyes on Jesus. Reminded of 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, I guess you've gathered that's probably one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. There Paul was in prison. Uh, they had taken his possessions away. They had taken his freedom away. His friends had uh, left him and deserted him. And they were about to take his life. Pretty discouraging circumstances, I would say. But Paul said, I suffer these things because I preach the gospel. And says, for, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So what is Paul doing? He's doing just exactly what the Hebrew writer said we should do, Right? Hebrew people 
were suffering a lot of persecution, he said, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul said, I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. I'm keeping my trust in Jesus. That's what was on Paul's mind. It wasn't the things that he was suffering so much. Then later, in that same letter, in chapter 4, by the way, I didn't put this scripture down, but you go back up about verse 2 of that same chapter, he's writing to the young preacher Timothy, and you would think, under such dire circumstances, he just might say, Timothy, look what a mess I'm in. And you're still a young man. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Maybe you should stop this preaching the gospel. You don't want to end up like me in prison about to lose my life. You don't want to end up. But that's not what he said. What did he say in verse 2? Preach the word. Be instant in season and out season. Oh, he said, Timothy, you preach it. You preach it. If they like it, you preach it. If they don't like it. And then in verse 6, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows his time is at an end. Is he discouraged? He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. See, there's that perseverance that we read so much about, right? You remember Hebrews chapter 10 and about verse 36, you have need of endurance so that you will receive the inheritance that was promised. He said, I've endured. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So not only is Paul's thoughts on Jesus, but his thoughts are on the reward. It's not self. It's not, oh, woe is me. Excuse me, I didn't mean to hit the mic. It's not woe is me, but he's looking forward to the reward in putting his trust in Jesus. And if you skip down to verse 18 of that same chapter, he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to be, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what's Paul thinking about? He's thinking about Jesus and how Jesus always keeps every promise and that even in these dire circumstances, knowing that he would physically die, his mind was on the heavenly kingdom and the reward that he and all faithful Christians will receive because God always keeps his promises. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul had been talking about some of the things that he had suffered in his persecution. But in beginning in verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So again, he's saying we've got some difficulties to overcome. That's true. But you know it's working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's still not dwelling on the problem, but he's dwelling his mind on the reward that's laid up. And that reward, he says, is eternal. And so the message of 
Ezra chapter 4. Yes, there will be trials and tribulations. And yes, there will be discouragements. And guess what? There always have been for God's people. You read, read it all through the Bible. You think about Joseph and all the things that happened to him. And so the things that we endure, and I'm not trying to belittle some of us, and uh, sometimes in your lives will have some, some real difficulties and some real trials. And I'm not belittling that in any way. But I'm just saying if we follow the example that we read in the Scriptures and what we read even here in Ezra chapter 4, we keep our mind on the goal, keep our eyes on Jesus, and He'll see us safely through every difficulty. And that's the end of chapter 4. And we're not going to have time to even get started in chapters 5 and 6. So uh, we'll hold those then for next week. So uh, next week we're going to look at Haggai, but before we do we'll cover chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5, we'll see that's where they were encouraged by Haggai and Zechariah and they began again to rebuild the temple and were successful this time. So we'll look at Haggai and see some things that he had to say to encourage them as they, as they worked. Appreciate everybody being here. Hope you can be back again next week. And again, we'll do chapters 5 and 6 and take a quick look at the book of Haggai. You ever thought about <clears throat> all the places in this world where that your name is recorded? If you were born in this country, somewhere your name is recorded on a roll as being a citizen of the United States of America. That's a pretty good place to have your name recorded. You have uh, freedoms and liberties and opportunities that most people in the world just dream about. If you've ever worked at a job and earned a wage, your name is probably in a computer at the IRS, you know, somewhere. They've probably got your name on a roll there somewhere, too. You know, you may not be too happy about that one, but, uh, but it's, it'll be there. And, of course, a lot, a lot of other places that uh, your name would be recorded. In some places you like it, and some places maybe you don't like it so much. But what, what if you could have your name recorded in, in heaven? Wow. Think about that. Think about having your name recorded in heaven. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20. Jesus had sent the 70 out to preach and teach. And when they returned, they were so joyful because they had discovered that even the spirits were subject to them. I take that to mean they were able to cast out evil spirits, that kind of thing. And Jesus essentially said, I'm paraphrasing here, well, that's good, but you know what you really ought to be rejoicing about? You ought to rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, that is something to really rejoice about. If you look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, there Paul, of course, writing to the church at Philippi, and he talks about their citizenship, and he said, your citizenship is in heaven. You're a citizen of God's kingdom, and that means essentially your names are recorded in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23, 
talks about those who are in the Lord's church are enrolled in heaven. And so, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, your name is recorded in heaven. And really, it doesn't matter too much where else it might be recorded, but if it's recorded in heaven, then you should really rejoice about that. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, writing to a church there, the, John said that uh, those that had overcome, their names would not be blotted out of the book of life. Would not be blotted out the book of life. And so Christians, faithful Christians, their name is recorded in heaven and their name is in that book of life. But if you turn over to the 20th chapter of Revelation, he talks some more about that book of life. And there in verse 15, he says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's really, really good to have your name in that book and really, really bad if your name is not in that book, if your name is not recorded in heaven. If you're here tonight and you've never obeyed the gospel, if you can read and understand the scriptures and understand when somebody talks to you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and understand what sin is, it's a violation of, of God's law, then you're old enough to become a Christian. And if you haven't obeyed the gospel, then your name is not yet recorded in heaven and your name is not yet recorded in the book of life. The good news is that you can change that tonight. You can have your name recorded there this very evening. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you'll repent of your sins, confess your faith before men, be buried with him in baptism, then your name will be written in that book of life. If you're a Christian and sin has crept back into your life, God is faithful and just to forgive. Whatever your spiritual need may be, won't you come tonight while we stand and while we sing?